This is episode 94 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of the amazing Fogel. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 94. Well, a big hats off to Richard Kaufman for his wonderful work on Genie Magazine. Last month, we had an issue about Erdnays, the enigmatic figure who wrote Expert at the Card Table. And this month, we have the Spirit Cabinet gracing the cover. But not just any spirit cabinet. We have an image of Thurston's spirit cabinet, but the article is actually about Charles Carter's cabinet, and I've got a whole story about that in a minute. But first, Erdnays. Now, here we have a very well-researched piece on the possible identity of the man who wrote Expert at the Card Table, because, well, no one really knows who S.W. Erdnays was. There's been speculation for a long time that it was a man named Andrews, E.S. Andrews, because S.W. Erdnays backwards is E.S. Andrews. And I've heard numerous theories, and I own a couple books on uh, on the whole uh, searching for Erdnays thing. Um, but here we have yet another candidate, and I won't give, a, give it away other than to say it's another great read, And I'm sure you'll find it very interesting. Now, the Spirit Cabinet. Uh, This will be the October 2023 edition of Genie Magazine. It's actually an excerpt from Mike Cavney's book, The Final Conference Illusions. And it covers Charles Carter's Spirit Cabinet in unusual depth. And it still leaves a few things out. Um, Probably they're in the book. It's a great article and you're going to love it. Um, Which brings me to my story. (laughs) Uh, Back a few years ago, uh, Mike Caveney put out a book called Caveney's Wonders, and it was actually a two-volume set. One was Caveney's Wonders. The other book was The Conference Illusions, and oh man, did I want to get that book, um, The Conference Illusions. I I had never attended any of the LA Conference uh, on Magic Histories. I'd never been so lucky to see those, but I did get to see Mike lecture when he was on the Essential Magic Conference several times. And so I assume that his, um, his presentations at the conference were very similar and he showed video of some of the things that he did at the LA conference. So, um, I couldn't wait to get the book because I knew he had at the time recently done the spirit cabinet. And so, um, so I ordered the book and I couldn't wait for it to show up. And, um, I turned the, kept turning the pages, turning the pages. And I found this photo of, uh, it's a, a color photo of Charles Carter's spirit cabinet. I was so excited. And then I realized, wait a minute, that's all there is. It's just a photo because apparently when the book was written, Mike had not yet done the presentation at the conference. So obviously he's not going to give it away in the book before he does it. So um, that's why it wasn't in there. But thankfully in this new book, the final conference illusions, it does have the spirit cabinet as well as some other things in it as well. So uh, I encourage you to get that book. I encourage you to get the October issue of Genie Magazine and read all about Charles Carter's really clever spirit cabinet. 
I think you're really going to love it. By the way, if you want to get those, um, magicwords.shop is where you can get Mike's books. And again, that's magicwords.shop. Uh, so, and Jeannie, you can get that um, uh, through geniemagazine.com as well. Uh, hopefully you already subscribed. So today, today I get to cover a gentleman who was kind of the Dunninger of Great Britain during, I guess, during the 1930s and 40s and 50s and beyond. And I first heard of him from the book, The World's Greatest Magic by Hyla Clark. And I just watched a performance from this uh, this gentleman, and I have to say, wow, it was breathtaking. That doesn't even go far enough. So let's get into today's feature. My friends, let me introduce you to Morris Fogel, the amazing Morris Fogel. He was born in East London, July 7th, 1911. He was the son of Jewish-Polish immigrants, and he was the eldest of seven kids. And quickly, if I might point out, his first name is pronounced Morris, not Maurice. I always made the mistake myself of saying Maurice. After watching several videos, however, everyone says his name is Morris. In his own words, Morris said, They were a poor family, but very closely knit. His favorite recreation was reading. Though he didn't have a lot of money for books, he did have time to spend at the library. And it was there that an entire new world would open for him. This is often the case with books. They have a rather magical way of transforming our lives, our views, our outlooks, our dreams. In Morris's case, the book that would change his life, Professor Hoffman's Modern Magic. And according to Morris, from his autobiography, my father wanted me to follow in his footsteps and go into tailoring, a respectable profession. However, he knew of my total interest in magic and realized with this passion for magic, I would be no use in the workshop. Turns out his father, Nathan, had a passing interest in magic himself. Nothing to the degree of his son, but he knew some card techniques, uh, some gambling techniques, and apparently taught his son the proper way to handle a deck of cards. But that wasn't all. His father, Nathan, would also introduce him to a fellow named Albert Marchinsky, this man created a unique Egyptian-themed act and called himself Ramesses. And after Nathan invested some money in the show, Morris was hired to work behind the scenes. He was young, 12 or 13 at the time, but he learned a lot. They worked the sideshow circuit and Ramesses was a headliner. It was a fantastic education on how to draw and keep a crowd. Fast forward a few years and now... Morris is ready to go out on his own, creating his own unique act, and he came up with something that on first blush sounds like a brilliant idea, but upon further inspection, it's easy to see the flaw in his thinking. Morris would be known as the magical impressionist. Now, I love this idea and have done something similar myself, um, except actually what Morris did is not what I thought. I thought he was doing impressions of famous people, but what he was really doing was impressions of magicians and their acts. His impressions were, were great. Uh, people like Cardini doing card manipulations and other magicians he did impressions of included Jasper Maskelin, Oswald Williams, the great Carmo, and more. 
1935 issue of The Magic Wand, there was a review of Fogel's act. The consensus was it was a great idea, but kind of poor execution because most people, lay people, had no idea who these various magicians were. Popular personalities might have worked better, and had he done that, we might have never encountered Maurice Fogel, the mentalist. If you're wondering, Morris did regular stand-up style magic in his magical impressionist show. Things like the miser's dream, cut and restored rope, card manipulations, things of that nature. In 1937, while on tour with Carol Levis and his discoveries, something happened that would forever change Morris's life. The show, featuring several acts, had played well at numerous music halls, but when they arrived in Northumberland, for some reason, the show ran a little short. The reason was the, well, the audience was a little difficult. And the only act that night that even went over was Morris Fogel's. The other acts really got nothing. And the theater manager complained, and they assured him that the second show would be better. But after the second show again, they ran short. And at this, this point, the manager threatened them, either do your required time or you're out what to do. Carol went to Morris and explained the dilemma that they were in. None of the acts were really connecting except for Fogel. So he asked, he asked Fogel, could you do a little bit more time? And Fogel was a bit reluctant because he only brought a small amount of magic props in which to do his show. He didn't really have anything extra, but Carol pleaded. Fogel was really their only option. If he couldn't pull it off, they were all out of work. Apparently, in the recent past, Morris had given a small talk on ESP to an audience, more really in line with asking them some questions and getting some answers, more of a, like a dialogue. And it was received well, so he thought, well, maybe he could do that and maybe add a little bit of mentalism to the show. So that evening was his first presentation of the Mind Reading Act. And in Fogel's own words, it was a fiasco. Besides being terribly nervous, the Brits had never really been exposed to mind reading before. It was an entirely new thing, according to Fogel. They just didn't quite understand what he was doing. But at the same time, they didn't berate him or boo him off the stage. And with the help of other members in the company, they convinced him he was onto something, but he just needed to add some elements to make it go over better. And sure enough, by the end of the week, the Mind Reading Act was receiving great responses. It was a hit. He moved on from the Carol Levis and Company to work with a new touring show, Huey Green and His Gang, and he would be doing his Mind Reading Act again. No one was remotely interested in the Magical Impressionist Act once they'd seen the Mind Reading. And it was just as well. The Mind Reading Act was even easier to travel with. While performing in Inverness, Scotland, September 2nd, 1939, Fogel came upon a difficult situation. He did a mental Q&A, and this is where audience members have written questions that they would like answered, and the mentalist apparently reads their minds and gives them the answers to their questions. And on this night, a tough question came to him. And rather than just avoid it or move on from it, he chose to answer the question. And he said, ma'am, I believe your question is, will there be war? 
And though he thought long and hard about it, he gave the only answer that he felt he should. And he said, no, there will be no war. And the audience, they burst into applause and cheers, and it was as if, as if a huge weight had been removed from their backs. And the next morning, Huey Green woke Fogel up early and told him, Pack, we're leaving right now. And why the sudden urgency, he wondered. He got packed and they hit the road, and Green explained that he had learned the Prime Minister was going to announce over the radio later that day whether or not war would be declared. And Green feared for a riot if they stayed in Inverness, and worse, feared that Fogel might be injured. Later that day, over the radio, the Prime Minister declared that they were now at war with Germany. One of the last parts of his autobiography, Fogel returns to this story much later in his career. He would run into two people from Scotland who had attended that very show, and now they were attending his current show. And he asked them what they thought of him after giving them such hope and having it all whisked away the following day. Surprisingly, they told him that they, they kind of understood the situation. He gave them the answer, the only answer that he could give, the one that they wanted to hear. And it was a bit of a healing moment for Fogel, who carried the guilt of that night with him his entire life. But I can't help but wonder... How would you have handled that? How would I have handled that? I think I probably would have moved on and uh, not answered the question. Now, if I can backtrack just a little bit, I, I'm a little curious about this statement that uh, pre-World War II audiences were unfamiliar with mentalism. Uh, the first thought came to me was the Piddingtons, but it turns out they were from Australia and they didn't put their act together until after World War II began. And then I thought of the, the Zansigs from America who performed in Britain before, uh, long before this time. Uh, Leo Tree and his wife didn't act together in 1925. And I'm sure there were others. And I think perhaps what Fogel meant was no one was doing a solo mentalism act. That was a brand new thing. Um, either that or mentalism just wasn't that popular in Great Britain. Maurice Fogel joined the army after the war broke out initially regretting his decision. However, he was eventually assigned to a group of fellow artists in the military and performed in a show called Stars in Battle Dress, which entertained the troops. His act actually got him in trouble numerous times with the military brass. On one occasion at a show, he was told, uh, he told someone that June 5th would be an important day in their lives. The next day, he was called to the military headquarters to find out what he knew about that day. June 5th, it turned out, was the original date set for the D-Day invasion of Normandy. It was a coincidence that Fogel picked that day, but when it happened several more times, he was again hauled into headquarters. He was persuaded to leave that part of his act out, at least while the war dragged on. Fogel was discharged in 1945 and was back to performing as a civilian. And now, with quite a bit of experience under his belt. Thanks to the book Maurice Vogel in Search of the Sensational by Chris Woodward and Richard Mark, we have the lines that Vogel used to open his act. It goes like this. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Morris Vogel, sometimes known as the Amazing Vogel, and I am a mind reader. I 
can read minds. I can reveal your innermost thoughts. I can predict the future. I have in the past predicted the winner of the English Derby. I can tell you who the winner of the Football Association Cup will be. And then there was a long pause. If I could do those things, do you think I would be standing here telling you about it? No, I wouldn't. I would be in a some sunny location on a tropical beach enjoying all the money I could have from all these projects I'd be involved in. And then he followed. You're probably wondering, saying to yourself, well, what is he doing here? I've made a study of human behavior, and I have discovered that it is possible to predict person's actions in advance given a particular set of circumstances. And then he would follow with a demonstration. So he starts rather boastfully, then immediately takes it down a notch and admits that such things are not possible. But he does use natural tactics. So when you hear mentalists use these type of ploys as they describe what they do, you can thank the originator, Morris Fogel, for beginning that trend. Often his first demonstration was guessing the amount of change somebody had in their pocket. His presentation for this took it from a simple trick to a masterpiece of showmanship. He was supremely confident, very authoritative, occasionally self-deprecating, but his revelations were mostly right on. For publicity and promotional purposes, he made appearances on BBC Radio and other high-profile programs. He was known as a music hall performer or variety performer, but as is common with mind readers and mentalists, people often believe what they're seeing is real, despite any sort of disclaimer or lack thereof. In late 1948, Fogel appeared on BBC Radio, and this time a newspaper columnist from the People's Newspaper, Arthur Hallowell, was out to challenge Fogel. The columnist took the meaning of mind reader to be just that. You really read minds. So in his way of thinking, Fogel was claiming to really read the minds of the audience. Hallowell thought that Fogel was more of an illusionist, a conjurer. And as we know, clairvoyant, mind reader, thought reader, mentalist are all part of the conjuring lexicon. Fogel denied using supernatural means, but fell short of claiming to be a magician. Also, as with anyone in the magic world who rises to the top, there are those out there that, well, are quick to tear somebody down. I've seen this myself over the years with folks like David Copperfield when he was doing his TV specials. Numerous magicians claimed, well, he's using camera tricks on his TV specials. Penn and Teller were hated when they first came on the scenes, some people still hate them. But I guess no matter who you are, you're going to have fans and haters or detractors. But in the magic world, if someone dislikes you, it's easy just to expose your tricks. And that's what happened to Fogel. Several people, all who turned out to be Magic Circle members, though this is not a slam on the Magic Circle in any way, it just demonstrate that these people were very into magic, they gave Arthur Hallowell information, secrets, methods known only to magicians on how Fogel did his effects. And then these were broadcast to the world. Needless to say, the magic community was fuming over it, but it was hard to blame Fogel. He didn't give anything away. No less than Robert Harbin came to Fogel's defense. 
Arthur Hallowell continued to go after Fogel, challenging him. Finally, Fogel accepted the challenge, and before a live audience broadcast over the airwaves, he did part of his act, to the great acclaim of the audience. But the second half, which Hallowell was more interested in, Fogel didn't do. He made excuses why, but refused to continue. And then this would continue to play out in the press, until the day that Fogel wrote a rebuttal. He wanted to know if the People's Newspaper was so intent on exposing what they saw as fraud, then why do they have an astrology column in their paper? Fogel then challenged the writer of the astrology section of the People's Newspaper, and no answer came back. All of a sudden, the People's Newspaper had nothing to say anymore, and the fight was over. But in the end, it was Fogel who suffered as he would continue to have people accuse him of fakery at his live performances. It's all rather ridiculous if you think about it, but this is the same thing that plays out time and time again. Now, let's move to the thing that really put Fogel on the map, and those were his sensational publicity-grabbing effects. One of the first, the bullet catch. The idea came to him when he joined the military, but back then he had really no idea how to do it. Obviously, a method was developed because his version of the bullet catch would initially be beyond what had ever been done in the past. He would have six rifles. There would be six bullets marked as well as their casings marked as well. Six marksmen were chosen. These were often military men who attended the show. They were instructed to fire at his mouth. Three, two, one, fire. His head jerked back. He held still for a moment and then bent forward and spit six fired bullets from his mouth. This stunt he did on multiple occasions, sometimes catching two, three, four, or five, depending upon the number of marksmen present. Always looking for ways to get more press out of a stunt, he once asked a doctor what would happen if he accidentally swallowed a bullet. And the doctor said nothing. It would just pass through your system. And then he asked him several more questions, and in the process, he devised a plan for promotion. One evening, while presenting the bullet catch, he would fall back and explain he had accidentally swallowed the bullet. He requested the marksman to prepare the second rifle, and then repeated the stunt, this time catching the bullet in his mouth. But afterwards, still suffering from the pain of the first bullet, he was taken to the hospital, where he was prepped for an x-ray. And just before they took it, Fogel surreptitiously swallowed another bullet to be sure that it showed up in the right place on the x-ray. In 1961, we have a rather unusual promotional piece by Fogel, this time kind of as an illusionist. The space race was all the rage in the newspapers at the time, and Fogel created a unique illusion around a rocket ship. It was a makeshift rocket that had flames and smoke and the whole nine yards. And he would get in, in inside of this thing. This was done outside. It was a raised platform. It uh, looked to be about uh, eight feet off the ground. He would get inside the rocket, the flames, the smoke, all that would go off. And then in front of the audience in full view, the rocket and Fogel would vanish into thin air. 
The January 1962 issue of Genie reprints a newspaper article on the event and includes a before and after photo of the rocket uh, on the platform, and then moments later, no rocket. Also in 1961, Fogel debuts a new creation, Cheating the Gallows. And this turned out to be a real sensation that could be used as an opener, a middle, or even a closing effect. The basic idea, there, were, there was a gallows erected upon the stage. Then there was a box that had four rope nooses inside. And these were inspected by a committee. And then a fifth noose was introduced. Now, the fifth noose was clearly seen to be special because it had a special snap fastener on it holding the rope together. So if you just pulled, that one would come apart. Now, to make all the ropes identical, there was a tube that was placed around the long section of the rope, hiding the possible gimmick. This way, no one could know which one of the ropes was the special one. Uh, a committee was chosen, as I said, to, uh, to pick a noose, which one out of the five they were going to pick. And then this was hung upon the gallows, and then Fogel climbed atop a chair and placed the noose around his neck, a rather shocking display, to say the least. And on the count of three, he would jump from the chair. Now, if he had chosen, or if they had chosen, uh, ropes one through four, well, he would have been hung right there. If, however they chose rope five, he would be safe. The tension rose, and then Fogel jumped off the chair, the rope snapped apart, and Fogel was triumphant. What I found interesting about this was Fogel actually developed a comedic version of this routine filled with jokes and humor. And this was the suggestion of a client who um, said it was a very horrific routine. Is there any way to uh, take it down a couple notches, maybe with some jokes? It would still be sensational, but not quite as frightening. Well, I guess that would depend upon who you spoke with. But audiences seem to love his cheating the gallows routine. Now, we got to return to the bullet catch. Originally, Fogel had a firing squad of six marksmen. But like I said in the past, some instances he had three, sometimes two, sometimes just one. It all depended upon how many marksmen he was able to locate for the show. He had presented it, presented it successfully for years, but now, now he wanted to do something different. It would change it. It would no longer be the bullet catch, but instead it would be an elaborate version of Russian roulette. There would be six rifles, all loaded on a carousel. In the back, a large target with six china plates attached to it. The rifles were spun around on the carousel, and then one of the marksmen would choose a rifle. They were instructed to fire at one of the plates. The plate would explode into many pieces, and now the empty rifle was placed back on the stand with all the rifles that well, had bullets in them. It was spun around so you didn't know which was which. Now, the six marksmen were instructed to choose a rifle. Each marksman was assigned a number. On the target was an envelope, which had inside instructions that read, Tonight's demonstration of Russian roulette has marksman number five aiming at Fogel, or whatever number it happened to be. In other words, the person wearing the number five, or whatever number was chosen, that person was instructed to fire at Fogel. The other marksman 
were to fire at the particular plates on the target. On the count of three, the men were to fire. Suddenly, all the plates were destroyed, and Fogel remained unharmed, high tension, great drama, sensational effect. Nothing could go wrong. Well, I don't want to give you the impression that these stunts are for everyone and that there isn't an element of danger involved. And I will go so far to say, if you're listening to this, don't get any ideas of copying them. They are truly dangerous. According to the fine biography, Maurice Fogel, In Search of the Sensational, they record that Fogel was performing at the City Variety Leeds Theater. During a performance of Russian Roulette, Fogel had inadvertently chosen the wrong rifle, and he realized it before he had the marksman shoot. But on this night, he asked the man who had the the live round um, that was going to fire at him, instead of firing at his head, he told him to fire at his chest. Now, these were air rifles, pellet guns. Uh, They were still dangerous. Fogel just assumed he'd be okay. When he counted three, the marksman fired. Fogel fell back. When he got up, he noticed his shirt had a tiny spot of blood that Well, that continued to bleed and bleed and bleed. The wound was small. He was safe. And believe it or not, he continued to do Russian roulette throughout the week. Another instance, again, of making a mistake, the marksman fired and the pellet hit Fogel in the forehead, bleeding profusely. He had to be taken to the hospital to be operated on to have the pellet removed from his nasal cavity. And there were other instances still, but he continued to do the effect for many years, thousands of times. He eventually sold the props for the Russian roulette in the late 1970s. Morris Fogel died October 30th, 1981. He was at the train station on his way to a show when he suffered a massive heart attack. You know, as I researched this episode, I found a number of statements about Fogel by other performers. I just want to give you a couple. Paul Daniels stated, Morris was far and away the most powerful mentalist I ever saw, even up to today, so powerful on stage. Nick Lewin had this to say, I think the greatest showman that I have ever witnessed performing magic was Morris Fogel. Morris, or to give him his correct name, the amazing Fogel, was a giant in the world of mentalism and magic. And I found similar sentiments that were given by Terry Seabrook, Robert Harbin, Richard Himber, Billy McComb, and others. Of the many things that I I learned about Fogel, I think the one that stands out mostly was his philosophy about the method was not anywhere near as important as the presentation upon the audience. That was paramount. And that shows really in everything he did. Well, my friends, that's going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to follow the program to stay up to date on new episodes. That whole liking the button thing, I don't know. Some some of these uh, providers have a like button. A lot of them have removed it, so you probably can't like the 
podcasting if it, even if you wanted to apple podcasts has a rating feature um and i'm always up for a five-star rating if you think we deserve it i'd love to hear your positive comments there uh if you have negative comments though please just send those to me directly so i can address them personally okay until next time i'm dean carnegie i am the magic detective please be well and stay safe